Cobram Estate is the most awarded Australian extra virgin olive oil. Let it be the hero when entertaining family and friends. Cobram Estate extra virgin olive oil is fresh and full of flavour. Perfect for roasting, frying, baking, dressing salads and for dipping bread. Make your food taste even better with a little help from Cobram Estate. Premium quality, great tasting and a versatile healthy alternative. Buy in store at all major retailers. G'day guys, Dill here. This should not come as a surprise to anyone given he's one of the biggest and best sports broadcasters in Australia, but Brian Taylor's podcast, Life of Brian, is absolutely flying at the moment. Recently he's had on James Brayshaw, Tony Jones, his nephew and Sydney midfielder James Rowbottom, and even horse teeth Tommy Sheridan. Life of Brian is not just about the guests, it also provides a great insight behind the scenes of the football media and BT's life away from the mic. He's a very, very quirky man. Who would have thought picking up sticks is so important? The show is hosted by his son Harrison and it's fair to say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree because Harrison gives Brian a run for his money. Life of Brian is a clubby sports podcast and it should be in your rotation. IllyXX. Welcome back to another episode of Dylan Friends. This week we have an intriguing guest in Sean Ryan. You may not recognise the name, but you've definitely seen Sean countless times across his 350 game record as a premier AFL umpire. I wanted to get Sean in for a chat to pull back the curtain on life as an elite AFL umpire. He was an incredibly open in the conversation to discuss what it's like dealing with the pressure and persecution that comes with officiating some of the biggest matches in the past two decades, including eight grand finals. Sean is by far one of the all-time goats in this field, often being pulled out of retirement for blockbuster fixtures. Sean is now retired and reflects on what's been an incredible career. Sean's contribution to the game cannot be understated, and after this chat, I'm sure you'll have a greater appreciation of the work umpires do like I have. Can't thank Sean enough for his time and the eye-opening chat. I hope you enjoy it. Let's go. My name is Deborah, Dylan's mum. Welcome to the Dylan Friends Podcast. In many ways, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. Tears, tears, strength. I'm like, I run. She's like, yeah. everyone runs. I'm like, but does everyone go to Man. the Olympics? <laughs> They're sitting there meditating, going, oh my God, I think I'm meditating. How good is this? I'm meditating. It's like, I had a Wu Tang call. I was like, yo, Dylan, thanks for getting us in. Just love it's it. knuckle puck time. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Sean Ryan, welcome to the Dylan Friends podcast, my friend. It's very exciting to have you in the studio today. 350 game, eight time. You're an eight timer. That's big. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Got a lot of questions to ask and I'm a little bit upset about a few other things that I need to bring up later, but we'll get to that um, get it first. Off your chest. Yeah, yeah. I've got a lot of disgruntled um, memories, some hard doings. I think I was done by the umpires a little bit. Yeah. But um, I'm looking forward to getting into it. How are you firstly? What's news? Obviously you retired at the, at the moment. You're retired. You, you do retire and you've come back before. Is this definite retirement? Um, it is. Yep. I've had a few messages where friends are calling BS on it, but uh, <laughs> I'm telling them that's it. I mean, there's a lot of upside to it in terms of time and family time, weekends back, you know, in the foot of yourself, you know, you, all your weekends for a long, long part of the year are taken up. But um, you do miss the group. And as much as you commit to staying in touch, the reality is you've gone from seeing them three times a week to not seeing them. Um, so there's there's that sort of void that you work through but other than that um i'm really enjoying the the time yeah i found that as well uh not that i had as long as career as you but you feel like when you leave a team you're like oh i'm gonna miss these guys so much but as soon as you move on you just go it's incredible how quickly you just adapt to things and you just get used to the new norm yeah you replace it pretty quickly yeah um yeah you do and um 
and and they do as well you know yeah. like and you do keep in touch and it's when you see them again it's like you know the last time you've seen them it's fantastic but you know everyone's got a life and everyone moves on pretty quickly yeah they do they definitely do let's get into it John. what is your first memories of, of getting into umpiring um obviously as i said you're one of the most de- decorated umpires the afl um in the afl's had and, and we'll get into that a lot today but how did you first get into it you were saying before off camera you weren't actually a footballer growing up it wasn't like that uh, I, I was I was a footballer. Like I grew up in Warrnambool, yep. in the country, and it was football in the winter, cricket in the in the summer. And I was one of a large family, seven kids, five boys. We used to belt the crap out of each other in the backyard. It was just a mud pit, all that sort of stuff. So it was it was awesome times. But um, I was I was saying that our family was a racing family. So you know, I grew up. My dad was a sort of champion jockey as a kid, and then. Got too heavy at about twenty. My my brother was a jockey. My, I've got an identical twin brother. He's a horse trainer, um, and my uncle won the Melbourne Cup when I was about Jeez. ten years of age. So, you know, we were frothing on horse racing a lot, but footy was a big part of it in the winter, just because that's all your mates were playing. So, I, I played a lot of footy, um, and then when I was about sixteen, time to get a job. Um, you know, I was fit. I was sort of doing it okay in cross-country running at school and stuff, and a mate was umpiring, so I thought, oh, well, instead of going to Macca's for 100 bucks a week, I'll go up there, and that's sort of how it started, just chasing the dollars. With umpiring, I think this is common knowledge, but for me and, and my understanding as well, like we, I know how fit you have to be to, to be an AFL umpire. Um, you've competed in, I think, triathlons and, and Ironmans, since you know whilst doing this and whatnot how fit do you, are you guys like how much training goes into like running what sort of kilometers are you doing in games well that's a sub- yeah um look we are fit t- particularly by the general standard of a person on the street um we're certainly field umpires i wouldn't describe us as elite runners mm. um like but boundary umpires yeah I would, that I surprises me because they're just running up and down all day yeah. so they they are guys by and large, who were just not quite good enough to make sort of national standard running. You know, there are guys that are peeling off 30 minutes for 10Ks and stuff like that, like just really, really fit dudes. Uh, And so field umpiring, you do need to be real fit. And when I say fit, you need to be able to, you know, run to a pretty strong level. And I'd equate it probably to an on-baller at an AFL club, I would imagine. Um, But I think what makes it difficult to, say, recruit elite level field umpires is fitness is one thing, but then your ability to comprehend the rules is another thing. So you need to have some level of intelligence to get a handle on very complicated rules. Then you need to have some degree of sort of coordination to bounce the ball um, because that can get ugly if you don't do that properly. And then um, the final piece of the puzzle is putting that all together under extreme pressure, you know. And fatigue. Yeah, so that composure element's really important as well. So there are a lot of people over my journey who have been brilliant at a two or three of that four, um, but if, if one of them's not up to scratch, um, you generally get exposed at some stage. Yeah, for sure. No, I can, I can completely agree. Well, it's like anything really, isn't it? Like football as well. You can be good at kicking, but if your fitness isn't there to match and if your game sense isn't there as well, yeah. it's it's sort of like a all-in-one that, that needs to fit and. I feel with umpire especially that not that mistakes are made often, but even when they are, realizing the fatigue and taking in the moment, the pressure under this, like how do you, how do you deal with that when when you're umpiring in terms of big games, 
big moments, making these calls. Yeah. What's what sort of pressure are you under, or, or can you simplify thing and be in the game in the present? Yeah, I, I can only talk from my subjective experience, and so. Um, I think you're sort of denying the reality to say, oh, it doesn't affect me, it's, you know, the crowd, etc. I mean, at the end of the day, if the scores are level with a minute to go and there's a free kick in the goal square, you need some balls to just say, hey, I'm going to pay this. And, I mean, the way I used to um, think, think of it is this, is you just need to pull what you think is the right rein in that moment because – if you do pay it or don't pay it, there's consequences either mm. way. You need to pay what's right. And so that's – I always just said, I don't care any anywhere, anytime is what I used to say. You need to be an anywhere, anytime umpire because if you decide, oh, it's late in the game, I'm just sort of not going to blow my whistle, well, you'll get smashed for missing a free kick, you know. So you just need to pay what you think's there at all times. And that was the way that um, – you, where you could look after yourself best because – um, it's not a situation where if you decide, oh, it's safer here not to blow the whistle, that you'll get it. Because, you know, this year already we've seen examples yeah. where free kicks haven't been paid very late in a game and there's just as much kickback. So, um, yeah, in terms of your sort of broader question, like how do you deal with the crowd and all those types of things, you do have to like develop this very present mindset or it becomes difficult. And um, my experience was I was sort of, able to develop that to a degree but the reality is if you know you've stuffed up a free kick and it's a big ticket item um, that's following you around for a bit of time oh yeah and you need techniques to sort of try and get yourself back but um, although I I felt like that was part of my game that was pretty good at um, it's still you know there was still some instances where uh, you know you were sick in the guts what is does anything jump out to mind to you now about uh, calls that you've made, like you've said then, that really stuck with you? And, and, and to this day, you still think, oh, that was a call that I got wrong or even just a big call that you had to make in a moment that is, is divisive? Oh, yeah. Um, few. Yeah. But, I mean, the, the one I love to give an example of is because um, it was Friday night, Ge- I think it was 2011, Friday night, Geelong had been undefeated for the year, Collingwood had been undefeated for the year. I think it was about round eight. Um 100,000 people, MCG. Now, if you're going to cock one up, that's not the stage. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was my stage. (laughs) So, um, and what happened, the context to it all is, if you recall, um, 2011, the start of 2011, they changed the advantage rule. And it used to be that the umpire always calls it. So we'd sum it up and go, there's no advantage there, stop, you know. And they said, look, no, just let the player, if they're silly enough to take it, it's their call. Yeah. Now, I've had 20 years of umpiring one way, this and this has just changed, and it's about 45 metres out of boundary throw-in. I pay a, a – a, a, sorry, the context is there's a minute to go. And, and um, I'm already nervous. Collingwood <laughs> are down by three points, I think, and Geelong are up, and 45 metres out in the um, boundary throw-in, I pay a free kick to the Collingwood Ruckman um, with about a minute to go. And it's a big call, but it's pretty clear. Got him over the the neck. And then the ball bobbles away and everyone sort of stops. And I blow time on and I'm just going to the mark. And then I hear this massive roar of the crowd. And I look around and here's the ball just sailing through the goals. And I'm like, what's happened there? I'm like, it it can't have been. It must have stopped. There's no way that, you know, it can't have been an advantage. Anyway... 
as I had a tendency to do, I had a little sneaky look at the big screen as I'm lining it up. Well, Chris, uh, um, Scotty Pendlebury has just pounced on this ball, snapped it, and drilled a goal. Clear advantage. Right. I haven't seen it. I've not allowed the goal because I'm here at the mark. Right. So that it wins them the game. Yep. I've disallowed the goal, and I've got one out, and I need this Collingwood Ruckman. I can't remember his name. now. Cameron Wood? Yes. So I've got to be – I'm an impartial umpire. I, I, I so love Cameron Wood, but I'm not liking his chances yeah. of this. Well, listen to this. <laughs> 45 metres out, I'm thinking this is a big kick. I sort of bring the mark back to 43. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm looking at this and, you know, I'm, I'm impartial, but I'm barracking hard. I'm like, get this through, man. Yeah. So he nails his kick. It's going straight through the goals and right on the line someone punches it through. And at that moment... He didn't I, make the distance. No. Woody. <laughs> He's kicked it from, say, 50. Okay. Last quarter. I'll give him it. Anyway, um, the moment that got punched through, I thought, okay, this is going to be a tough week. So then it was just the circus, you know. Um, and, you know, that's what it is. That's part of the game, you know. And the way I explain it is, as you said, it's a human game played by humans, officiated by humans. All people will make mistakes at some stage, you know. And... The reality is, though, that um, at, in the AFL stage and in, in Victoria particularly and in Geelong particularly, Torquay, where I live, the surf coast, so, you know, it's not a week where you walk around and no one's not mentioning it. Mm, mm. <laughs> They're pulling you up at every cafe and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, and so, you know, that's one instance of, um, you know, I suppose a few over the career where you – just go, this is going to be tough. What what follows that? Because I, like, not just from, I suppose, a critic's point of view, but in terms of what follows that through an umpire's point of view, like review, yep. what follows it through for yourself mentally, and then yep. what follows it through like scrutiny in terms of like the public? Yep. Um, it's a really good question. So um, firstly, if I can deal with me, the way um, by that stage – I'd made a few stuff up you know, over the, the career and um, we might go into this later, but in terms of my upbringing and um, from a young age, the sort of path that I took in terms of what I was encouraged to take, sort of an inward path, self-reflection, I was always sort of observing, you know, what's my attitude to this? How do I? And prior to that, I came to the conclusion that the best way to deal with these things was just go, yep. So people would say, you stuff that up? And I go, yeah. That was it. Yeah. And then as soon as I owned it and said, just a cock up, you know. Now, it doesn't necessarily um, – it doesn't change anything and you still feel bad about it, but there's sort of this sense of relief that, well, it's just my error. Mm. No one else's fault. I stuffed it up, you know, and that's it. And so I learned that um, sort of owning it helped me a, a bit. It helped sort of relieve it. It was when if you were defending something that was probably indefensible, there was this then internal struggle and then you were starting to argue with people and all that sort of stuff. So um, then in terms of the feedback, look, the, generally, um, you know, the coaches will just go through it and say, you know, this is wrong, this is what you could have done better, that type of stuff. And there is, well, particularly at that time, there was a, a weighting of mistakes, if you know what I mean. Like if there was a something that you clearly should have got right and you clearly got wrong or um, then, you know, it would it would be taken into account more harshly. That was a bit different in the sense that 
the mistake was nearly understandable. The ball was hard to see. Everyone else stopped around him and all of those types of things. It wasn't like a guy got his head ripped off in the goal square and I'm sitting there calling, you know, play yep. on when I should have got it. But so I wasn't sort of necessarily – I wasn't like heavily criticised internally. Um, but then, yeah, the e- external media, you would know, like sometimes there's a viciousness to it all, you know, like they can go pretty hard. Um, and that's their role to create stories and emotions within their viewers and readers and that's how they sell papers and all that sort of stuff. So um, I, I just really didn't listen to any of that. But unfortunately, as you guys would probably know, you get told it pretty regularly from, from people out and about or messages from people and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, so that's sort of how I tended to deal with it. With the review of game, obviously that situation, as you said, was quite – black and white, like, yes, the free kick was there, but, you know, you should have paid it, you, you knew it. In terms of reviewing of games, how stringent is that of AFL, like, yeah. week to week? Like, after games, for the general public that might not know, and I don't even know this either, how, like, much are you going through and reviewing all of the free kicks and all the things paid? Yep. So, um, firstly, in terms of the the coaching part of it, and then perhaps I'll talk about my approach, but the, the coaching part of it, is, is really extensive. I mean, we we have a coach at every game um, and it, it, the system's changed a little bit now, but for the, pretty much all of my career, you'd have a coach at every game and then that coach would give you a running sheet and it might have in the course of a game something like 60 things on it and they are things relating to free kicks that were correct, free kicks that were missed, free kicks that you paid that were unwarranted. It'll have stuff like positioning like you just were in a poor position that's why you miss that or if you keep doing that position you're going to miss it importantly in the last sort of decades your communication because we're mic'd up you know what you said you know how how um how you could have explained it better or that was good or appropriate maybe learn off this guy he said deals with that situation really well you know that sort of stuff and then there's a lot of teamwork things you know could have helped your mate a bit more here uh you know all of those types of things so That'll be an email that you might get on the Monday after a Saturday or Sunday game and it'll be sort of a, a running sheet of everything and you'll get a general feel of how your game's been assessed. Is it like a rating or is it more just like a pass? Or? Yeah. They, they, I think now, which is good, everyone's different. You know, like I don't didn't care at all about my rating because I didn't see how that helped me. Like yep. You do your little ratings in the background and I'll just try and keep paying correct free kicks. But if you want your rating and all that sort of stuff, you can. Um, and the depth of analysis that can depend depending on umpires as, as well. So then that would um, go into the next day, which would be um, training and, and coaching. So you, you do your training, your physical stuff. We'd have a group meeting, might be an hour or so, and we'd go through some general themes and um, some learnings out of the weekend, some good things, all that sort of stuff. And then that that's generally what blows a lot of people's minds when they turn up to just view that session is you've got – a lot of pretty intelligent people just tearing shreds out of oh, things yeah. and really just digging down to what the hell do you want us to do in that situation. And, you know, umpires generally, like a lot of sports people, are driven by some aspect of fear. That is, don't send me out on that ground not knowing what to do. I need to know whenever this occurs again, what do you want me to do, mm. okay? Um, and so that would be the analysis of a a review in the game. And then by Tuesday, you want to have locked that away and you're starting to work towards the weekend's game. Um, Now, on top of that, most umpires would actually then watch the game themselves, scrutinise themselves and do all that sort of stuff. And 
I probably did that four games, five games and never did it again. And that's just a personal choice. And I'm not suggesting my approach was the correct one, but it didn't work for me. You know, I would, you know, watch the game. Oh, God, why did I pay that? You know, sort of stuff. And it wasn't serving me. And um, so I just thought, well, I'm not just going to do this for a while and see how I go. And, and, and that just worked for me. So, um, yeah, I hardly ever watched a game back. I've never watched the grand final back that I've done. Wow. Nothing. So, not in, even, fact, yeah. in fact, you know, this spun people. The first AFL game that I umpired was, I think, the third AFL game I'd ever been to because I, you know, I came from the bush, racing family, didn't really go to Melbourne for AFL footy at all. Um, you know, when I did the under-18 grand final, you know, I just walked outside and gave my two tickets to <laughs> for the senior game to people. And, you know, I wasn't really sort of frothing on AFL footy, you know, and that made it easier for me in terms of I didn't really have allegiances to club and really, you know, all of that. To, and my identity wasn't really yeah. caught up in AFL footy a lot. Um, yeah, so anyway, I hope that No, no it definitely does. It's funny you say that with the the – interest in AFL football because I actually found that quite similar in myself like since I've finished playing I've never been to a lot I haven't been to a live game I don't really watch games on the weekend um, I don't really miss playing football at all but it was sort of a passage like I, I enjoy it but it's not like it wasn't everything for me yeah it's, yeah. it's funny how you can still you know officiate at such a high level but not have a, a love for it I think it actually does help yeah, I mean, and I think everyone's different. Like it, it, it can, it can. It's good, good to have an outlet because once you get, you know, like it's very easy in sport. I think for your identity to get caught up in your accomplishments or your achievements, which means that your self worth is up and down depending on how you're going. You know, in footy, if you're playing a good game, the world's fantastic. If you're getting dropped, and it's a disaster. Yeah. You know, and umpiring's the same as that. And uh, you know, you start to get caught up in that. I think everyone does gets caught up in that circle of my self worth linked to how well I'm doing in my sport at any given time. For sure, rule changes big topic yeah. in in footy um, in officiating the games. It's 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 one of my things that I get really annoyed about in in sport. Like I, I'm a big believer in like just leaving the game as it is, but I understand that things need to change sometimes. Yeah. I don't haven't like a, a solution for the game, but I just think like. The game's good. Just just leave it alone. That's my opinion. How hard is it for umpires to keep up with these rule changes? Because a lot of people would know this, but stating the obvious, umpires are officiators of the game. They don't change the rules. So yeah. each year and when rules are changed, that comes to you guys, and then you're learning to keep up with these new things. How hard is it to keep on on trend and and even with some of these rules? Do you like do you like them? Do you agree with them? Um, so yeah, first part of your question, how hard is it? It's, I mean, every rule change makes it hard mm. because um, because it's another thing that you have to be on the lookout for, and not only that, there's then generally flow on effects from it, um, you know, and so it, it makes it really difficult in terms of are they necessary? Then you know, I, I think some of them are, and you know, when you look at it, it's. A, a lot of it is sort of player behaviour driven. You know, I came through an era where it was just trying to make it black and white in the early 2000s. Like, guy gets hit in the head, it's a free kick. Yep. Now, after five, six, seven years of that, players thought, gee, if I just get my head near his legs or arms, I'm going to get a free kick here. Yeah. And players 
my perception is that players will do whatever it needs to be done to get a kick or win a game of footy for their club. So they're willing to drive their head into a player's yeah. knee or arm um, just to get a free kick in front of goal, you know. And now then what happened is now high isn't high. Did the player duck? Did he shrug? Did he drive? Did he, you know, now all of this happens in 0.01 of a second. Yeah. So you see a guy get his head ripped off, but then on replay he sort of put his shoulder up or he shrugged his sister, and that just happens like that. And back in the day, high is high. We didn't have to think about any of that. Was this a free kick? Now we've got to think about all of that. Now, you know, now um, when, when I started, say, 2003 to 2010, um, a guy would nearly get reported for an incident that now he's getting a free kick for contact mm. below the knees. Yeah. You know? I know. So yeah. he would come flying into a pack and hit a guy's head and the guy's on the ground and you'd report the guy. Now you're like, well, hang on, you went to ground and took his legs. <laughs> and so the flip of that when you've been doing it one way for 15, 20 years. And so, but there is a purpose to it all, you know, it's player safety. Yep. Um, and then the greater, greater purpose, you know, in terms of this year is trying to, you know, free the game up and, and, and flow it up. So Do you think they're working, the rule changes this year? Yeah, well, I must say... I was a little sceptical about whether a player being able to move a couple of metres laterally on a mark is going to have that much of a difference. Yeah. And I think the early signs are that... I, I actually, I actually do agree with that. Yeah. I actually think that works really well. It's Obviously, scores are up this year, which is great for everyone to watch, and we love seeing goals kicked because, you know, goals are good. Yeah. But realistically, that man on the mark that can't move opens up these 45 so much more that yeah. you can't defend it. You look, you cannot defend these ball movement, which makes it so much easier, and I suppose even to keep up and officiate. I'd like your view on this because you're probably more informed than mine, but my sense is that not only is it easier, but the player's mindset is changed now. The player's mindset is, I can get away with more. Now, a lot of what they're doing now, they may have been able to get away with other years, but mm. they're encouraged to do it and they've got the mindset that I can do it and take the risk and take them on. So it seems that that seemed like a minor change has changed a mindset that players are now prepared to take greater risks in that yes. scenario. Yes, I could have been anything, I reckon, That's if right. I was playing in this age. Mate, do what I, I did, the, come the back. Of, yeah, the amount of 45s I would have ripped if there was no – see, the man on the mark would always rattle me because you have to pop it up a little bit more than you do the loop, the loopy kick and then it's just yeah. turnover city back. So, Tragedy. Yeah, it is a tragedy. That's one of the, world, the world's biggest that that rule was not there when I was playing. Um, with the rule change, as you were saying before, what are some rule changes that – you have been hardest to get your head around, like saying, you know, off air, there was some things that were saying like, you know, as much as you're officiating this game and, and, and delivering the rules that are needed to be had, you've had to make calls where you go, shit, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, I think the point that you referred to earlier is we, we don't make the rules. We just have to implement them. And sometimes there's instances on the ground and you're like, I can't believe I'm going to have to pay a free kick here. And it makes you sick, you know? And, you know, I gave the example. For me, it was hands in the back was one of those rules because I, I just try and keep everything very simple in every aspect of my life. And in f football, it was just like free kicks fit into two categories, protection of player and enabling everyone a fair opportunity to contest the ball. So in a marking contest, I'd just look at it and say, has he done something that unfairly put the other guy out of the contest? Yes, he has, bang, or... There was a minor hold or a minor push, but it didn't wasn't enough to affect the marking contest. Play on, and then when we got to hands in the back, um, 
it would be not uncommon that when you paid the free kick, the guy who got the free kick didn't know it was his free kick. I mean, that was quite a common scenario because he wouldn't feel this little light touch on his back. And, of course, when it's only a hand in the back, it doesn't affect the contest at mm. all as well. And so you'd see a guy who's just – in fact, the guy would be standing there in pole position for a mark and the person in front would back back into his space – and you'd have to pay the person who's backed into his space the free kick because he backed back into a guy's hands who just happened to be waiting there for the ball. And, you know, when you're paying that in a goal square for a goal in a tight game, you're like, Phew. Oh, it's, it's tough. <laughs> I remember, I'm not sure if this is still the case on the hands in the back rule, but I do remember being a player and in the preseason, our guys would come down and we'd sort of have practice, you know, practice the new rules together. And there was a day where I reckon for like three hours – we were practicing people coming back to us and having a straight arm rather than a yeah. bent arm. Yeah. Because a, a, a straight arm is not hands in the back because you're not pushing, yeah. but that's. And, and this, this is a rule. Um, and I actually love the ambiguities of the rules for a reason we might get onto, but this is a, a great example of a rule where it was introduced to make it black and white. It's all black and white. Um, you know, hand in the back, free kick. Now, the day this got introduced, I still remember the meeting. And we were all in the meeting and further to the point where I said, you get a group of AFL umpires together and you put in a new rule, be prepared. Cause, you know. Oh, yeah. So there you go. Now, this is great rule. It's all black and white. And someone put their hand. Um, what's a hand? And the guy delivering the message is like, what are you talking about? What's a hand? He goes, that's a hand. Oh, okay, so four fingers is cool. We can just – so if they put their hand out with four fingers – Three, where do we stop two? You know, this is, you know, the, the, and where's, where's the back? <laughs> Who's asking these questions? We are, you yeah. know, we're, where's the back? Yeah. So is it the hip? Is it the side? Yeah. Is it the hip? Where do, where's this all stuff? And that's exactly what occurred. You know, like guys were sort of like this, okay, is that a hand? And it was sort of side-ish, back-ish and, oh, and you're sitting there going, wow, this isn't clear cut. This is actually a hell of a lot greater, yeah. <laughs> far more difficult to implement. Then, then the fallback position, which was simply – did he push him enough to affect his ability to mark the ball? Yes, he did. Free kick. No, he didn't play on, you know. Wow. So these, that's just a micro yeah, yeah, definitely. every rule that comes into play and the way it gets scrutinised and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah it's oh, – the intricacies are, are incredible and I think that's what, you know, when, when at every start of every year umpires will come out and deliver a, a talk and the players can question on these and coaches and – I feel so sorry. I'm forgetting the name of the boss of AFL umpires. What was Hayden Kennedy? Hayden Kennedy yeah. comes out and he's got the hardest job ever of just oh, yeah. explaining what the rules are, why they're doing them, and yeah. it's it's a tough and role because they get he gets absolutely grilled by every club that he'd go present to. And of course, the the mindset of the AFL player or club generally is okay. So how do we get around this? Mm. It's not it's how do we getting pl- a new rule. Yeah, how do we play? It's not how we play to it. It's how what loopholes are there? You know, essentially, and so you know. Holding the ball is a classic. That it was just, you know, a player had three steps, balanced, steady, that'd be holding the ball. Now, you know, if he, you know, fends off, if he tries to evade, if he puts the ball in the air, if he, these are all prior opportunities. Mm. Now, they happen really quickly and it looks really harsh. And then, you know, the flip side is that if he didn't have a prior opportunity, he doesn't need to dispose of the ball. But of course, what we get asked 100 times on the ground and the crowd scream, how do you get rid of it? He doesn't need to get rid of it. He didn't have a prior opportunity. And so, you know, the understanding of all of that is really difficult for people to get their head around. And I get that. And, um, but the 
problem is that um, you would probably know, I don't know how many people that you would know in mainstream football who would understand the intricacies of holding the ball, Yeah. yet they're informing the public on what the decision is, whether it's correct or not. You yeah. know? And so that sometimes is where the disconnect is. For sure. Let's talk about the, the money time. Of, of football, it's it's playing in the big big games. You've officiated eight grand finals. Is is that the most of any umpire? Um, Have you got the record? So this is part of the. I don't think so. There's a. I think back. Um, so well, firstly, Matty Stevick um, did eight last year. Brady Roseberry's done eight as well. And then um, back, I think early nineteenth hundreds. There was, I think, somebody did nine or ten. Okay. Yeah. Modern day though, it's it's up there. What what are these games like to officiate? I can imagine as big as they are for players. Like I'm a really, as I said before, AFL is, is something that I love. But the grand finals are something that I just really love watching. I love everything about them. Um, never got to really play in many grand finals as a kid or anything, so I'm sort of obsessed with with how big they are for players. But what's it like being an umpire on grand final day? Um, I mean, it's an incredible experience, um, but there's a lot of pressure with it, obviously, as well. Um, so the whole week is a big week, you know, and anyone that's been in AFL Grand Final will tell you, like, you get to the game and you're just pretty exhausted by the end of that. And so you, you need to have techniques to deal with that. And I think the more you do, the more you learn that. Um, but the game itself, particularly when it's tight, is, you know, a high-pressure environment. Um, and it's about, you know, what we chatted about earlier, having techniques to stay present and just deal with every contest as it unfolds. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, it's a crazy week. Like, there's so much going on and the game is just incredible. And, I mean, it's funny because when you're in that game, um, you're sort of – it's just a game – it's not another game of footy, but it's a contest that I have to officiate, a contest I yep. have to officiate. It's not like you're really – thinking about the gravity, what, yeah, gravity of the circumstance. But then if you're not, and I'm just watching it, I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, this is this is full on, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And then you realise, shit, I've done a few of them myself. Yeah. And, <laughs> but you're like, you know, it's it's. I get more nervous for my mates who are doing the yeah. game and you're watching yeah. them and you're like, oh, man, get this right, get this right. 100%. So you've done 2008, 2009, the grand final rematch in 10, 11, you retired and then came back, did 17, 18, 19. Those games in those grand finals, what are your favourites? I suppose going back now, which games do you look back and go, geez, that was a big game? Um, and in those games, are there any memories that sort of the game just slowed down and you remember something happening or watching something going, shit, I'm actually here, that just happened? I'm lucky. Some of those games have been some classics. So I, I think um, 09 was the toughest game I think I've ever umpired. I think at the time it was like the most tackles ever. Is that St Kilda Geelong? Yeah. Yeah, and that was with the toe poke. Yep. Yep. And so I had that that incident and you knew at the time, oh, this is this is pretty cool. Like it was just a, a pretty cool thing. Um, and then like that – and I think people forget because at the end it was 10 points or something. But when the siren went, I think it was four points and then um, someone kicked a goal, you know, as everyone was walking off, yeah. walking away. Basically. Was it Max Rook? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was tough. And, you know, that had the point, um, you know, touch the post, you know, you throw that into the equation, where does it sit, all that sort of stuff. Like that was a really, really just a tough game. And then the draw was just like, yeah, that was an experience I don't think I, – I, I know I'll never forget that because, um, 
you know, I had, I just happened to be in the middle of the ground and had that last sort of minute and you knew this has got to go any time now. I was well aware that it was a draw. Um, and it, when that siren went, the the stillness of every everyone just in shock and you're just sitting there and you're thinking – and there was a, one of the first – it was the only time that you sort of had this – I explained it as this sense of like, I don't know, if it's over the top, but like a oneness with the players. Like we all just could not believe – that, and I'm looking – I was standing there, just players all around me, just exhausted. Um, and then, like, Nick Del Santo had the ball and I went over and got the ball and then I helped him up and then there was a photo of me helping him up and then that was, like, everywhere the next day and that was a pretty cool photo. Um, but then, you know, like, afterwards, like, what does this mean? You know, Did you know, like, what, what was going to happen? Yeah, like- and we knew and there was just this sort of, like – I can't believe we have to go through all this again because grand final week for me anyway is I think everyone experiences it differently but you get told you're doing the grand final. I'm not really doing cartwheels. I'm just like, okay, let's get this right. Yeah. It's a big game. You can't stuff this up. Let's get this right. So it's just about preparation, getting it right and that sort of stuff. And then you're always telling yourself, for me, my body was always gone by the end of the year. I'm just getting through. My back's stiff, all those types of things. I'm like, just four more quarters. That's all it is, four more quarters. You get to three-quarter time, you're like, one more quarter, <laughs> one more quarter. And then the goes, you know, that all meant nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, – and I think everyone had that same experience, like, Jesus, we've got to, you know, we've got to do this all again. Um, so, yeah, that was pretty cool. And then the other one was obviously um, the West Coast Collingwood. Dom Sheed? Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was that was pretty cool. Um, so that was a really really what? good game. This uh, this one hurts a lot of um, Collingwood people, and just because of it, on the fact now that game obviously has a bit of uh, what would you say? There's a bit of a conjecture about what happened there with um, Willie Rioli. Yep. The hands in. What's the officiation on that? In your point of view, is that called? I'm happy it was called like that. Don't get me wrong, but is that yeah. correct? It was correct, and it look. The thing is in AFL footy, and this isn't a cop-out, there is so many 50-50 calls in AFL footy, right? You could marginally go this way or marginally go that way. And so, um, the you know, like, look, I wasn't aware of that at the time. I was in the other zone and so I wasn't aware that any possibility of a free kick and didn't even know anything about it until sort of the next day. But, um, yeah, you look at it back and the Collingwood players sort of searching for – Willie Rioli first because he thinks that's – it looks like that he thinks that's where the drop of the ball's going to be and then realises, no, it's not. It's going to be another two metres ahead of it. And then Willie Rioli's like, no, nah, I'm here. You're not, you're not getting past me. This is, this is where it is, you know. And so I can understand that being – definitely being a play on call. And even with those calls too, you know, if that happens in the first quarter, it probably never even gets brought up again. Oh, of it's just it time, yeah. time and, and perspective of what's probably happened. Um, Anything else? I could talk about grand final stories all yeah. day. Is any other anything else stick out that uh, even just like run-ins with players? I suppose like do they say anything in these big games where you're just thinking like this player's in a grand final, but they've just done this? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, like little silly, quirky ones like like guys like say Jimmy Bartel and Dusty Martin, like it. It's just like they're having a kick with their mates at the park. <laughs> You know, five minutes to go, a school's level in a grand final. You know what I mean? Like they just—it's just like just having fun out here, just getting a kick. And and like I remember in '09, and it was deep in the last quarter, and it started raining, and 
you know, I've got the ball and, you know, you just, okay, let's switch on here. And Jimmy Bartel's next to me. He's like, dude, it's heavy. That's right, isn't it, mate? What do you reckon he's short? It's going to pour down. I'm like, hey, Jimmy, two minutes to go, mate. Four-point four game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he was seriously just like, oh, this is another game footy. And, and that sort of stuff does relax you a little bit yeah. as well. Um, and, 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 and Dusty's very similar. Like, he's just, just it, but the perception is he's just loving kicking a footy, you know. And that, you know, that joy in professional sport is cool to see because mm. it's just, it, we get so overridden with structures and this and that and things we've got to do and just that instinctive um, joy of footy is it's pretty cool. You've mentioned those two there, and I suppose being able to see them just in their element, purely straight in the zone, as you said, like that's incredible. Who are some of the, your favourite players over your career that you've been able to watch? And obviously, you, you sort of build a rapport with these people because you you know you're officiating most of their games um, yeah. through the years. Is there any other players that stick out to you that you just love to to officiate? Well, there's players in terms of personality, but in terms of like just love and see them in full flight. Buddy's probably my number one. Like if he's up and about, he's just unbelievable to see. Um, Cyril Rioli, he was another one. Um, and then like, yeah, back in the day there was, I mean like guys like say Warren Treadray, I just did, I probably did, Treadray, Hurd and Jonathan Brown were sort of three guys that, I don't know how many games I did where they just tore the bag out of it. You know, you're talking like 17 marks, seven goal, you know, this sort of stuff and, um, particularly Jonathan Brown and Hurd were two guys who a couple of times had come off like massive injuries, like 16 weeks with broken cheekbones or something. And then first week back were like 16 marks, five goals, best on ground. And you're like, whoa, this guy doesn't even need a few weeks to get back into it. You know, they're just straight into it. Um, so, yeah, like in, in terms of like just loving watching them play, I think um, Buddy, Cyril and probably Dusty, I just love the way he just goes about it. And the thing with um, Dusty, and, and to be honest, most of the great players, you know, like Ablett and Judd and these guys, Dane Swan, another, you just don't hear boo from them. Mm. Like, pay a free kick and they just put their hands up and that's it. And they just don't bother arguing with you. And the other thing is, I call it, you know, um, you, can, you can trust them. And what I mean by that from an umpire point of view is, Sometimes when a guy throws his head back and you've umpired him a few times, you know, look, unless I see this guy get hit in the head, I'm not prepared to pay a free kick here. But if Dusty Martin goes to ground and holding his nose, you know, he's got one in the face. And Dane Swan was a classic. Marking contest, he's just doing whatever he can to hold his ground. And if he gets put on his bum, he's copped a real shove where other guys – you go, oh, I'm not sure whether there was much in that, even though he's sprawled on the ground. So you, you start to learn over the years, I can trust this guy. And, you know, these are the little things that experience gives you. For sure. In On the contrary to that, who are some players that made it very hard to officiate? Like, was there any players that, obviously, when you cross a field, you're a different person, not, in, uh, not attacking their character at all. But yeah. in terms of arguing with the umpires or or not being able to trust. Like, for some players, arguing with umpires actually would get them into the zone, yeah. I feel. Like, yeah. is there any people that stick out to mind? Uh, look, guys who were often hard – so in terms of, say, Glenn Archer was one who was just 
my sense was he just this white line fever. Like he got on the ground and he just needed to beat his opponent. And and I sense there was like this sort of level of like anxiety as well, like about like you get got really amped up. And then when you blew your whistle, that would naturally just flow over into well, you're the guy that you've given a free kick to my opponent, and he was always defender, so it meant yeah. he's going to get a goal basically. Yeah. Um, and so you know he was one that you know loved to question um, decision. There was you know. Then there's some guys who are quite smart, you know, and these intelligent players give you the shits because they often know the rules. And when you've made a mistake, they know you've made a mistake. Yeah. You know you've made a mistake. And, you know, like if you're like a Joel Bowden or a um, uh, Jared Roughhead, you know, these guys are pretty cluey and they knew the rules and they would just saddle up to you and say, well, how's that a prior opportunity if that, that, and this, that and the other or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I'll never forget that day, Joel Bowden. He probably changed that rule of rush behinds yeah. when he kept playing on from fullback and just walking back over the line. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, and I remember um, having an incident with Joel. It's a minor incident, but as an example, where a player kicked across the ground to him and I've judged after it left his boot and I looked where Joel was, this won't be 15. So I start calling play on not 15 a second after it's left his boot, he's having a crack at me mid-air, <laughs> right? <laughs> Before he's taken the mark about how would I know that it's 15 metres if the mark hasn't completed yet, Yeah, right? And so then we had this great banter about, well, I'll tell you what I'll do next time. I won't give you any notice. I'll wait till you mark it. Then I'll call and uh, play on and someone will tackle you. Yeah. That's what I'll, I'll give you no notice, Joel. And, you know, and there was just, just this to and fro. And, you know, it was just like this guy knows the rules. Yeah. You know, he's all over it. So. Huge. Uh, 2011, after the big grand final, that's when you retire. Yep. What, where did that decision come from? Was it something that you just thought, look, I'm, I'm tired, I'm, I'm finished? Um, what was the reasoning behind the retirement? A lot of things, but the short of it is I just wasn't enjoying it at all. Um, and, you know, when you're in a grand final and you're just really not enjoying it, just, like, get the grand final, you're like, okay. Um, and just the love of the whole game and everything had just been sucked out of it for me. And there was a combination of things, I think, in retrospect. Um, you know, I was busy at work, had a really young family. I was travelling up from Torquay. But the other thing was um, I'd probably had come off the back of five or six years where, although I loved it at the time, I was probably doing nearly every big game, mm. whether it's Friday night or Saturday night or Anzac Day finals, grand finals. And the scrutiny on those games is is pretty severe. And, um, you know, the reality is if you do 100 of those games, there's going to be a handful at least where you're just getting pulled apart. And I think in retrospect, like just getting up every single week it just started to wear me down. And the reality was, you know, I sort of said a long time ago, I just sort of will only do things that I enjoy. And and at, after 2011, I just thought, after the grand final, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually enjoying this at all. In fact, the opposite. I'm not enjoying it. I'm hating it. And so, yeah, I thought, well, why am I doing it? And, you know, I'd done five grand finals by that stage and sort of achieved way more than I thought I could. Um so I just thought, well, time's right. That's um, 
give it away. So that was it. You alluded to something earlier saying um, from, from your upbringing you were able to develop like skills to bring you back into the present and and find your love for, for footy again and umpiring. Was that something you had to like revisit in that stage? Is that probably where that kicked in? Or Yeah. My mum, when I was about 11, got diagnosed with leukaemia. And so uh, one of her good friends was sort of, you know, new age for that time, really new age, and came and delivered her all these meditation tapes. And I sort of seen the transformation that it had with her, and it was pretty profound. So then I would go and nick these tapes, you know, and I'd use them sort of on and off. But then when I got into year 12, and I, I started to just use them in pressure situations. And so year 12 started to ramp up the pressure exams and that, and I'd start to go in and do all these types of things. So what sort of meditation is this? Just like you're listening to someone? Yeah, this talk, was just or? guided, initially yeah. guided meditations. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so I started doing that. And that's that was a real gift for me. I was really lucky and really fortunate that that sort of came in my path. And I used that. Um, a fair bit from then on, um, on and off, but, you know, pretty much daily. And then as I got to the stage where I was like a barrister, AFL umpire, all those types of things, it really assisted me to, to juggle all of it. Um, but I don't think the technique was in any way perfect. And I was still finding new things and stumbling around, but it was just a process of constant self-evaluation and that sort of stuff. So that, that was um, something that really assisted me but then um, by 2011 I just wasn't enjoying it and to get to your point yeah I had um, three years off where I was really really enjoying retirement you know just um, loving it and then you know out of the blue get a call from Hayden Kennedy and and you know to this is probably getting maybe too woo-woo for I don't know for your listeners I'm not sure who your audience is but I've always been really big in like signs from the universe oh, you know, and that's wow. yeah. <laughs> I'm talking yeah. to the right man. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and to me, I, the way I'm wired, it's not, a, it's not a very um, illogical thing that there's a, you know, a divine presence that's orchestrating much of what's going on, you know, of which, you know, it's intertwined with, a, with us all, you know, that to me seems sensible. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I've often looked out for those signs and, you know, instead of using the human mind to nut my way through, like, just give me a sign. And I would often say to the universe, you know, I need a sign and I need it in a, in a way that's easy to understand and clear because I'm really confused now, you know. So the short of all of that woo-woo story is that... Oh, we love the woo-woo. <laughs> Please don't skip the woo-woo. Yeah, so is, yeah, Hayden rang and to be honest, it made me sick about going back and I'm sort of delving into a story that I probably haven't really expressed to, to too many, but um, I did. I did not want to go back, you know. Um, but I was also like, "Why the hell is this coming to me right now?" You know, I'd been retired for three years. I was like thirty-eight at the time, and I'm like, "This is really strange." And um, I met with Hayden and Wayne, and oh, yeah, you know, they were really good. It wasn't like we're desperate to get you back. It's just like, look, we think you retired too early. You have got some good years ahead of you, and we don't want you to regret, you know, this. Um, you know, we think you can add a bit, those types of things. And my immediate reaction, to be honest, was I, I feel like I had a good career and I left some sort of legacy that was okay. I reckon there's a real chance I make an ass of myself if I come back, you know, and that was the fear of it. And this was around the exact same time that um, was it Thorpe and Phelps and that were coming back and just making horrible ghosts of it, yeah. you know. <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, I, I don't really want to do yep. this. Um, 
Anyway, but yeah, to your point, I just sort of like kept saying like, I don't understand why this is happening. And then I remember I dropped my daughter off um, and this is the woo-woo-y part. I dropped my daughter off at um, ballet and I was like, I've got to get back to him and I'm really confused. I don't know what to do. I'll go for this run, but you know, I need a sign and I, I don't know what to do. So I got back to the car after the run and as I'm opening the gate to go and pick her up, this lady comes from the opposite direction and says, look, I know you don't know who I am but I reckon you need to go back umpiring because um, they really need you, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what? Okay, I'm going back. (laughs) And so that was, you know. You didn't know the lady? No, I didn't know her. And the timing was quite incredible. And I'm like, okay, there's the sign. And that's, you know, it sounds stupid that every part of my being was like, don't do this. But then I thought there's got to be a greater purpose to all of this. You know, why would these people be ringing out of the blue and all? type of stuff so the short of it is I said I'd I'd come back and for the first three months it just made me sick like um you know trying to get in and then I got back to the group so that was in I think that was in like about near the end of the year 2014 and I got back 2015 and I'm in three years you wouldn't believe how much this game has changed there was 15 rule changes the positioning was now completely different I'd umpired under Rowan Saws and Jeff Geisha, now Hayden Kennedy, was his take on it was completely different. What we said to the players, where we bounced to the back, to the to the short side, now it's a long side, where we st- stood in positions, it was just, it was like a different game. And I remember saying to my wife in November, I'm going to give this to mid-December and if I don't come good, um, this is, I'm done here. <laughs> anyway, we, we sort of got through a period and I did my first whatever, it was, NAB couple, whatever it was called back then. And it was the worst I've bounced statistically and the worst I've umpired decisionally in my life. First game back, it was a horror show. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is just so bad. <laughs> and my fears are coming like, you are making an ass of yourself, yeah. you know. And um, it was just horrible. And then um, got in, did a few of those preseason games, started coming a bit better and then – Remember I did Carlton Collingwood about round five. It was Mick Moldhouse's game where he broke the record or something. Oh, like yeah, yeah, I played in that game. Okay. Did I get give- <laughs> Oh, <laughs> God. Got- that, yeah. was a, that was a bad day for, for Carlton. Yeah. I can't remember the game at all, oh, okay. but I just remember that was the first game where I thought, okay, I'm sort of getting back here a little bit. Well, I'm happy you had a good day. <laughs> I definitely didn't. Oh, that, was, right. that was, I think, probably the most disappointing. Like, put it into context, Mick, Mick Moldhouse were playing Carlton versus Collingwood. Mick was obviously coaching Carlton. He was breaking the game's record of coaching and it was built up as like one of the biggest games on yeah. of the year. Yeah. And the pressure for us to perform on that night, you know, to show respect for Mick as a coach and yeah. these things and we got beat by probably nearly 100 points. Yeah. And I just remember going in the next day and that was nearly the, the start of the end, you know, the beginning of the end for, for Mick at Carlton because it was just huge. It was – you know, he was meant to be this like celebration of Mick Moldhouse and his team just lost by 100 points and fuck, fuck, some of the words that we got said to you, know, I couldn't <laughs> repeat them on camera. Yeah, I mean, you can see the you can see the mindset of the umpire. I don't remember that game no, at all. No. I'm just like, oh, I had a solid day. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. You know, that's all that matters. But yeah, that's um, – but I remember it was a big game for, you know, for, for the Carlton team and for Mick and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, yeah, so to continue the story, I suppose that um, – so I got through that year and I would, was probably serviceable and it was, 
it was actually the first time in my whole career from juniors that I never made the finals panel. Um, and, and I'm like, do I keep going here? I mean, it was serviceable, but I'm not, I'm not just going to deliver serviceable. And then um, I decided to do um, this 10-day silence meditation retreat in Tassie called Vipassana. And, and that was start of this 2016 season, like January. And that was what I needed. Yeah, it just go, and that's a long way of getting back to your comment a few minutes ago about is this a time when you revisited that sort of meditation yeah. stuff, and so that sort of really assisted in resetting me. What, what but, is this? What, what what did you do on the camp? Well, to be honest, it sounds extreme, but for ten days, you twelve days, you get there on the the first day they talk to you about etc., and then ten days straight, you basically. Um, Sit in, you're in silence, don't talk to anyone. For 10 days. Yeah, um, which is, a, that's a joy. That part of it for me was unreal. I don't have to talk to anyone, I don't have to look at anyone, I don't have to do anything, interact with anyone. It's actually a great break. No phones, no nothing. I, I you die. know, Well, that all goes away. But, um, but the hard part is you are sitting, meditating cross-legged for about 12 to 14 hours, I would imagine, each day. Um, and... And you just like they're just teaching you this technique, these techniques of just you know self awareness, um, and you start to learn the structure of the mind, the structure of the human ego. You start to learn um, you know belief systems, limiting belief systems, transcending those belief systems. You start to observe how this mind, body, spirit organism is sort of operating, and you start to actually you know. Go within and know know yourself a bit better, and that was really big because not only did it reset me, but it gave me a technique that I felt was really solid that I could then take forward. And what then crystallised after that is, hey mate, the purpose for this is not to do grand finals; it's to actually find the joy in this sport again. Mm. You know, like this is what the whole purpose of this was. And so it was like a full circle, um, you know, awakening where I'm like. Oh man, you're you're trying you're trying to do this sport to get an outcome, being grand finals or whatever it is, and the pats on the back. But I'm being pulled back here to can I do this sport, which is a sport in a pretty hostile, critical environment, but actually enjoy it because umpiring is a pretty hard sport to enjoy. You know, there's you're you're measured on your on your errors. That's how you're assessed. How many mistakes did I make? We never go into the rooms after a game and punch the air and say we won and mm. any of this. It's just I've only made this many errors as yeah. opposed to that many errors. You know, that's how you measure. So so that became the journey, you know, from 2016 to the end was, okay, I'm going to find the joy in this sport. I'm going to do this sport from a place of joy if I can and I'm going to retire loving this sport. And so that was the ambition from then. And it, I, I describe it as – I transitioned from like an ambition phase in my life to a meaning phase. You know, I yeah. wanted to experience things, you know, sort of a greater depth. And I was really valuable. And, you know, I'm really grateful for that experience. I'm really grateful for getting the opportunity to come back to then have that experience. And then, then what unfolded is um, eventually through a number of techniques, in, including Vipassana and self-reflection, uh, you know, observing myself and, you know, why did I have that certain attitude in that scenario and asking all these questions, 
I found that joy, you know, and, and, and a lot of that joy for umpiring doesn't necessarily come in the game, which is a high sort of pressure environment. It comes from the group and it comes from within. And so that's sort of become nearly our group mantra that externally we're not going to get the validations. On the ground, you're not going to get the validations. If we're going to enjoy this, that's create an environment of joy where, you know, there's a genuine care, genuine love for each other, and we just love being around um, this um, AFL umpiring group. So that was sort of the transition, and that takes us to last year. And, you know, I got to the stage where I'm like, well, you know, I'm 45. I've done everything I want to. I'm just loving this sport. I'm loving this group. This is exactly what I wanted to achieve. I'm here. That's closed this chapter, you know. Yeah, it's huge. done. And so, um, yeah, I did the prelim final last year and it was actually quite a nice ending, I thought, because everyone, including myself, was like, what a way to go out of grand final. And I didn't get it and I didn't get it because I didn't deserve it. But when you look at it and I told you that whole story, it's actually, you know, a nice metaphor to say, well, that's not why it's you not came what back. it's about. That's yeah. not what it's about. It was about just the joy of the whole thing, you know, and um, – and what a way to finish being in sort of like a group, a hub with all your mates and their families and meeting their partners and their kids and all that sort of stuff. Um, and that was just a really cool environment to finish. And I thought, I, I just can't think of a better way to put a full stop on it. And so that was the end. Crazy, crazy. The the camp thing is, I have so many questions about this camp. The, the, the past yeah, retreat? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sure. Like I listen to music, I have my AirPods in, I'm listening to a podcast, I'm making phone calls, I'm listening to music, I'm on my laptop. I really, really struggle being silent. Yeah. Like it, it's – I get like really agitated and like, yep. you know, it, it's because I've worked out in my head. It's like I need my brain to always be stimulated to keep me not thinking about other things. So now, you know, to the point of this and why I'm so interested in this fact is like when I'm in the car and I've had a big day, I try and just sit in silence on the way home and yep. put my phone away. Yeah, because then it's sort of instead of listening to a music or zoning out into a podcast, I'm actually just thinking about everything that I did that day and try and slow down and 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 pick off the points where the day was good, what I've got to do next. And I found it nearly it's actually really hard to do. Like I still don't like doing it. I'd yeah. rather just put the easy option in and listen to a music or listen to a podcast. Is that the what what the silence is, or am I just? No, totally wrong there. I mean, if I was to explain it in a, a sporting context that most of your listeners would understand is the human mind is a function of the body. And if we ran all day every day, you wouldn't last long and you'd break down. What we're taught to do at school is to think and then at work to think and now with social media to think and with our phones to think and then we read the paper and then we put the radio on and then we watch the news and then we listen to podcasts. Our mind is going all the time and yep. no one ever teaches us to give it a rest. And so this is a technique that assists in giving it that rest. And, you know, your example is a good one because I often do that as well if I'm travelling, you know, long distances. I'll say, I'm just going to sit in silence here and then you'll sense the energy within your body wanting to do something. Oh, I, I, I get twitchy. Like yeah. I, I just grab my phone, try and call someone or yeah. it's just being alone, you know. Yeah, and so this is, yeah, one, one technique that assists you like, what, what do you do in that situation? So, you know, and they will, there'll be an energy that you'll feel, like it might be in your solar plexus and it's pulling you to do something. It's like, no, nah, I've got to do it. So then you go into that energy. Like, you don't 
the thoughts are irrelevant. The thoughts will just arise by reason of whatever sensation's going in your body because if an event occurs and you feel a certain way, that then creates thoughts. So what they're teaching you to do is sever um, that identification and attachment with that process so that when you feel a certain way, you don't then um, identify with the thoughts that are dribbling through your mind. With what you're saying, it's obviously had a profound impact on you and, and how you've gone about and how you stay present and, and, and how you, you know, became such a, a good officiate of the game. With that, the biggest thing, you know, nearly umpires are known for as well as doing your role is, is Brownlow time. Brownlow medal's huge. What's the process of doing Brownlow medal votes? It's field umpires, including emergency umpires. Field umpires will sign it off, but we'll get input from the emergency umpire. Don't get given any stats or anything like that, um, although... They might flash them up on the screen during the, the day from time to time, but I think that's well, – I haven't seen it much in later years, but they used to, and then the emergency umpire might see that. But um, we will then, at the end of the game, you know, after we've probably got changed and done all of that, um, just the field umpires and the emergency umpire will go away in a room and we'll just um, start with the team sheets. And it's usually just a process of elimination. No, 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 no. I tried to fit you in a couple of times still. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Did you get any? No. No, None. I didn't. I've been thinking about that. We, we tried to check before. You, you, you're off the hook because you weren't umpiring this day. But I was just certain, I think it was around 22, 2016, Carlton versus Melbourne. I sung the Ds. Absolutely killed them and, 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 and buried their finals hopes. They're just recovering now from it in, yeah. in 2021. But, yeah, no votes. No votes? No. Yeah. We've got a few wrong over the years. Yeah, that's, that's one, one of them. That's clearly Look, one you're of human. Them. Yeah. It's okay, but it, that one was... <laughs> You've moved on at least. Oh, yeah, no, I don't think about it any, at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's probably a big thing, is it? Like, just to say, I did get a few votes. Yeah, no, I didn't get any. Yeah. Um, so the process is that, and... Do you, have, do you think we, that by the time Brownlow's on, you have a good indication of who's going to win, or is it just totally obscured? I think it depends... Um, you would often say the good teams are Collingwood, Geelong, etc. You might be doing them eight times, nine times, and you might have a reasonable idea. But in the last sort of um, sort of seven, eight years, it doesn't seem to be that. It seems like there's a spread where guys aren't really doing teams a lot. Mm. And if that's the case, I mean, if you're doing a team three times, you really wouldn't have much of a clue. Yeah. So I, I haven't had a hell of a lot of an idea in the last sort of six, seven years because I just haven't done teams enough. Yeah, it's a tough one. I think like even in the last few years, there's always either big theory on Brownlow medals, and it's this isn't a, a, a hit at the umpires. It's more like the media as well. You nearly have to deserve to win a Brownlow. So at the end of the year, they go, for example, Lockie Neal. Like Lockie Neal probably had a better year the year before he won the Brownlow, yeah. and then he won it the next year. Yeah, it's like you, you sort of have to nearly win it to then get recognised to then win it. Yeah, like it's an interesting point. I mean, we would say, no, nah, that's not the case. But history says, you know, Dane Swan was the same. Yeah. I mean, Chris Judd was the same. Gary Ablett was the same. There's a few of them that were close. And then the next year, um, you know, they, you know, got got the nod. So, and I'm not sure, you know, about whether which year was better and all that sort of stuff. But apart from the odd one in the last 20 years, most of the people who... I mean, pretty spot on, yeah. They're, they're like pretty up there in, in yeah. everyone's... And, you know, and there's the whole talk about on ballers award and all those types of things. But we have gone through an era where the on ballers have been pretty sort of elite as well. What's what's next for for you now in the, in the next phase? 
uh, post AFL um, umpiring careers? Anything on the agenda? What can we what can we be expecting to see? I think in the short term, and and I haven't really sort of contemplated a long term, but in the short term, I'm just enjoying like investing more time in the family. And although I have always tried to do that, the ability to just go, you know, like three weeks ago, I just said to my little fella Ned, "We're going hiking." Mm. That's it. Friday, just grabbed the stuff, went down the surf coast. Three days hiking up up the up the coast. I could never have done that, you know. Um, just go on a holiday whenever we want. Just you know, we're going fishing. Just doing all the stuff that when I grew up in Warrnambool, this is the stuff you did. You know, you just went fishing, jumped on your bikes, went mountain biking, hiking, all that sort of stuff. So I'm just enjoying being able to do that. So that's about the extent of it. Just work and family at the moment. It's huge. I actually bought a swag. Yeah. Not long ago. So if you and Ned need some Come, man. more experience. Get down um, the Great Ocean. Yeah, if you need some more it. experience campers, more than happy to, to jump in on that. Yeah, do that. <laughs> <laughs> Just a swag. Just a swag. Middle that's of it. winter. That's all I've got. Love it. Um, Sean Ryan, thank you so much for, for coming in today, mate. You're, you are a serious operator. Um, you've absolutely dominated uh, the AFL umpiring ranks and um, should be extremely proud of yourself in, in a caper that is is so, so tough and um, yeah, you've you've done an awesome role, and um, I know internally how how well respected you are in the AFL community, and, and it's an absolute pleasure to have you in the studio to tell your story. Thanks, still appreciate it. appreciate having me in, and appreciate the time and the questions and your interest of it all. If that wasn't enough for you, and you want even more, you're in luck. Dylan Friends is now on Patreon. Dylan Best Friends. An exclusive loyalty subscription featuring the debrief podcast of each episode and bonus Q&As from Patreon members like this. Damien Petrucci wants to say, how do you deal with the scrutiny and pressure of AFL umpiring? Obviously, we talked a bit about that today. Is there anything, are there any topics or um, strategies that you'd, you'd use? Um, I think if you're an aspiring AFL umpire, it's a recognition that that is part of it. So you need to recognise that it's part of it. Uh, and then... Get some practical things about get rid of your social media, um, don't read the papers, don't watch the footy shows, all those types of things, and then have a really um, good close-knit group. Like, get rid of the friends who are happy to shit-pan you. Like they're, they're not going to serve you. Um, and then, you know, work out in your mind um, whose opinion you value. Yeah, and then discover that. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you'd like to learn more, you can head to patreon.com forward slash Dylan Friends, or you can head to the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends podcast. If you like the show, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, leave a review, or even share with your friends. The show is produced by myself and Sam Bonza. Damon Jackman from Creative Edge Films is responsible for audio and visual production. The show is recorded at the Dylan Friends studio in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to get in touch or suggest a guest or advertise with the Dylan Friends podcast, please email us at inquiries at dylanfriends.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.